the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the bonus round, a release of extra Q&As with guests or deleted material from 180Cast episodes that was too interesting not to share with you. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the flip phone at 323-999-1802. Let's get started. In this bonus round, I talk with Joshua Childress about what it's really like to patrol the border and what to do about the rampant violence in the border territories. For more interesting conversation just like this, check out episode 36, Ex-Border Patrol Agent Leaves Job for Open Border Ideals. You know, it was divided up into, into sections, and so you went to your area, and you basically just patrolled back and forth, looking for footprints, looking for signs of entry, looking for anything strange that was going on and you just investigate until you figure out what it is so when you found these people what what happens to them at that point so and and i guess this is probably a part i don't often talk about but i mean so when i would see some sort of entry i would basically track it down like i was tracking a deer or an animal or something like that which looking you know it, it was exciting at the time looking back seems a little uh, makes me cringe a little bit, but you know, you're, so you're, you're tracking people sometimes for many miles. Um, and then you catch up to them and they're, you know, dirty and tired and thirsty and, you know, scared often. Cause it's, you know, most of the time happens in the middle of the night. Um, so I would, you know, you, you do a quick rundown, you ask them, you know, what country they, they're a citizen of, uh, you know, ask some basic, uh, uh, questions for you know for data purposes you write them up or pr- place them under arrest and then uh usually at that time we would just take them in ourselves towards the end we ended up having like um transportation services that that would come and pick them up for us but you know in the beginning we would just take them ourselves uh take them back to a holding facility on our sta- you know in our station and there, there would be people working in the in the processing center, and they would take their fingerprints and put them into the system. And basically, everybody that we caught was just set up for prosecution. I mean, some stations will let people voluntarily return. They'll just, you know, put them into the system real quick and then basically drive them back down to the border and send them back across. Uh, we prosecuted everybody at first. Um, so you, it's a, that's just... that. What year was this? So I... I joined in 2011. I hit the ground in 2012. Um, so 2012 to 2018 was when I was actively working. Mm-hmm. So uh, under both both uh, Obama and and Trump. And the the funny thing uh, uh, under Obama, Obama still had a lot of Bush era prosecutorial um, guidelines in place. So anybody that wants to tell me that, you know, Obama was this, this, uh, 
you know, kinder, gentler. Like a dove. Yeah, I mean, he just, he was a continuation of Bush in my, I mean, for, for other than his speaking abilities, you know, in my opinion, in my view from, from what I saw in his policies, he seemed like a continuation and sometimes, uh, you know, kind of a, a worse version of, of Bush's policies, but that's uh, fairly unpopular to many of his supporters. Okay. So those people were set up for, for prosecution and then were they released or continue to be detained or what? So we would hold on to them. Um, and usually they'd go see the judge the next day. If you're caught on a Friday night, that's a bad idea. And you just have to wait till Monday morning. Um, so we hold on to them in a, you know, in a holding cell, which is kind of like a general population. We'll, we'll separate by men and women and, and children, but you know, it's usually, you know, a bunch of people in a, in a large cell, you know, concrete benches and, and stuff like that all together. Uh, then they go see the judge. And if it's their first time, they usually get like time served and then they just get sent back. Um, if it's, if they've had multiple crossings or if they have a, a, a criminal history in the United States previously, they'll get, you know, a harsher sentence commensurate with whatever other, you know, other marks they have on their record. But uh, yeah, most of the time, first timers, it was just like they got time served, um, but they had an official prosecution on the record. So the next time they came, the the sentence would be harsher. So so it was like a one strike policy sort of deal? Uh, Kind of, but there was never, I mean, a lot of people were like, you know, will ask me like, well, well, if you, if you met somebody that was like no threat, well, why didn't you just let them go? Like, well, <laughs> you don't have that kind of discretion. It was like your only discretion is, I mean, you d- you just don't have any that you, you prosecute everybody. I mean, towards, towards the end, they, they found that it was uh, not a really good use of resources to prosecute every person, especially first timers. So first timers, we would not send them to see the judge anymore and they would just get uh, put into the system and, and essentially sent back. Okay. So did you run into many family units while you were on the job in, in your particular yes. region? Yes. Uh, we were actually, you know, at one point they told us that we were second behind the Rio Grande Valley, which has historically always been like the, the busiest spot in the Border Patrol, uh, the Rio, Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Um, so we, in fact, the the weird thing, it was, I guess, you know, looking back, it's kind of a little bit of foreshadowing. While I was still in field training, we got called over to, because we walk, we worked along the Colorado River and we got called to the river one night and there was like a group of 24, 26 uh, Romanian gypsies who'd come across. And this was 2012 and nobody would really seen anything like this. <laughs> and we were just like all dumbfounded. So we went to help process them and transport them back to the station. And um, it wasn't until uh, sometime in 2014 where same thing we started getting. That's when it just kind of started boiling over. We started getting Romanian gypsy families um, in uh, Punjab Indians, um, some Chinese uh, and then lots and lots of the Guatemalan, Honduran, and El Salvadoran families. Um, they just started showing up and we don't, nobody really ever understood why they picked Yuma, Arizona to do it. 
but they just started showing up and they never really seem to stop. And as I check back every once in a while and it seems like it just keeps going. Yeah. The reason I, I ask all this stuff about what the process is, is that that seems to be something that's often left out of the press coverage. And then we're kind of like left to fill in the gaps of what exactly does Border Patrol do? Because a lot of people say that, I mean, <laughs> there are some people that are essentially asserting that Border Patrol are like a bunch of Nazis. And then other people say, you know, there's absolutely nothing. You know, it's like in Trump's terms, it's it's perfect. It was perfect. So I just want to like clarify yeah, so what exactly goes on. It's um it's it's really tough because I, I've I've tried to make it a point that I'm not gonna denigrate the people that decided to stay and keep working in the Border Patrol. I don't agree with those policies anymore. That's why I cut ties and I left. Uh but it's hard for me to to turn around and point a finger when I used to believe in the same thing. Like I don't fault people for for believing something I used to believe too. Um, so I'm not going to point any fingers and call anybody names like that. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, in, in my view now, it, the, these are very problematic policies. And I think there are much, much, much better ways uh, in dealing with them. Nothing has been healthier for me personally than to look inside and challenge things that I held to be true because I I found a lot of them to be useless. Yeah. Speaking of challenging, I'm going to push down this road just a tiny little bit. So considering the likelihood, the 99.999% likelihood that the U.S. never fully legalizes all these drugs and we continue to have the same drug policies doesn't that mean that there's the same amount of violence on the border? And in that case, what's the best case scenario with how to deal with that if we're not going to, as you say, I mean, take away their, pull the rug out from under them with the market? Right. So um, in, in that case, uh, what I don't think, what I think probably most Americans don't understand, and this is just the way things are now. Not to say that they can't morph into something in the future, but um, it is bad for cartel business to carry too much of that violence over to this side of the border. Because every time that every time an agent or somebody gets hurt, you know, along the border, people are mobilized, people are moved into that area, it gets shut down and locked down, and they can't conduct business anymore. The cartels cannot conduct business. You know, after Brian Terry was killed in, I think, was it 2010 or 11? Um, that, you know, the cartels could not operate because there were so many people trying to track down who did that and just secure that area that it's it's bad for cartel business to have a lot of high-profile stuff going on there on the border. So it, it's really not going to, I don't think it probably will flare up at the border. Um, and that's, you know, I guess some people will say, well, okay, as long as it stays in Mexico, well, I'd like things to get better for Mexico too. Mexico is looking more and more like a failing state at this point because the cartels have, are basically like a, like a para government 
over there and they have right, it's, sort of people actually in, in the government who are on their side. Right. If you pay any attention to that, any anybody that joins a police force or any politician that says that they're going to make it their effort to step up and, and, and stand up to the cartels, they're dead quickly in short order. I mean, it's, it's a, just, I mean, I, and that's another thing, like, I don't blame the people for wanting to leave those countries, especially because, and I, I do feel like it's, impart our policies that are, are creating that that environment so for one the violence i think would go away and for two for two i think fewer people are going to want to leave in the first place if that violence goes away true but given what we have control over in terms of u.s policy mm-hmm. and not changing our drug policies like what i mean are we looking at just a, like a lockdown of the border and like taking all the ICE agents who would be deporting people and put them more in, if they want to, um, a, a security role in, in terms of like cracking down on the cartels at the border? Like, is it really just like a defend the, the home turf sort of situation? In which case it seems like a wall would be a good idea. Like, this problem, it seems like, is is so vast and sprawling. It's more than just people want to come here, and it's more than just drugs are coming across the border. Right. Like, right. I. I mean, I, I. I speak about it in you know that that I the drug war I, I see as the biggest and easiest way to attack the difficulties. It's not the only way by by any stretch, um, but I do think that there's uh, some large misunderstandings about. The, the idea of a fence or a wall or anything like that. Um, so in, in 94, Clint, Bill Clinton started, I forget what his deal was called, some de- deterrence through something. But um, so that's when they really started going to these populated areas, these, these cityscape areas um, and building fencing in those areas, which did, did help to a degree. Um, we, you know, we had in Yuma, our whole area was was covered, and in the areas near near populated places, it it bought us a little bit of time to be able to get there, and you know, hopefully make the apprehension or at least be hot on the trail so we could you know catch catch up to them pretty quickly. Um, so if 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 you are actually interested in deterrence, then um, those those walls around populated areas, you know, cities, those have been shown to be somewhat effective, um, at least in buying us the, the, you know, time to respond. Now, what you don't really ever see is that that same area around San Luis that I was just talking about, uh, the time I was in, in the Border Patrol, we found two tunnels underneath. Now, we found two. Who, I, who knows how many are still there? Um, but two tunnels were discovered. Uh, I've seen people cut through the the steel mesh fences with axes, uh, saws, torches. Uh, they use ladders. I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. So even and you're saying the cartels have the most resources to be able to do. Well, yeah, the, like the the cartels do um, do basically run the the, the smuggling um, 
enterprises, the, the, the human smuggling enterprises as well. So, um, yeah, so they have guides and they have, I mean, there's, they, they have a whole structure. Um, they have people patrolling, armed people patrolling, making sure that, you know, everybody that's trying to cross has paid their dues and everything like that. Um, so it, it ha- there has been a level of effectiveness um, in putting up walls around populated areas. Um, but what that's essentially done is pushed those people who would have crossed there out farther into the desert. And unless, I mean, so there's what, like... And that's more that's more dangerous, oh, right? Far more dangerous, especially in the you know the summer yeah. months in Arizona, because um, I, mean, I mean, there's wildlife, there's the you know mountains to cross, there's the heat, there's any number of things that can go horribly wrong, and even so, we're we're at the border patrol was at about twenty one thousand agents when I left. Um, you'd probably need like ten times that many to lock down the border in, in the way that you're, you're, you're speaking about now. Um, so it's just, I mean, and they have a hard time hiring a thousand in the last few years. So, Oh, well, given the process that you outlined, right. no, well, it's, and it's even harder now. <laughs> no I was, I was one of the last people that didn't have a mandatory polygraph. I mean, now it's a mandatory polygraph before it was just a polygraph. If there were, if there was, a reason for it. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a realistic. So this is just basically a battle, an ongoing battle that we're always going to have. Right. So so if you, if you put a fence, so we, we did have fencing up along, you know, the, the open desert areas. Um, now, if you, if you have a fence up around a a populated area, like San Luis, the city of San Luis, you know, it's a, uh, maybe a football field between the fence and the first neighborhood in some spots. So, you know, you've got under a minute to get, get to that, those, those people that have crossed right there. Um, so the fencing does buy a little bit of time there, but if you've got 30 or 40 miles between the fence and the highway where somebody's trying to cross in the open desert, well, you've just delayed, you know, you've spent millions and millions or billions of dollars to put a fence up that has delayed that three-day journey by about 45 seconds. So it's uh, the fence outside of populated areas, even if you are a proponent of immigration policy as is, it's just outside of populated areas. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have this huge infrastructure in place that's going to delay people by an entire 45 seconds when they'll be walking in the desert for three days. Speaking of walking in the desert, this is just one more question before my very last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, I've talked, I've talked to a former ICE agent. I'm sure you've probably heard of Michael Cutler. Um, He, he's testified before Congress lots of times about um, 9-11 and, and issues on the border and things like that. But he insisted to me that Parents who bring their their children across the border are not are 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 in fact um, victimizing somebody because they're victimizing their children because it's such a a dangerous journey just to come for an an economic 
advantage, right? Because you've got people starving, people dying of thirst, people dying of suffocation in the back of vans, Mm -hmm. um, people drowning in rivers and, and all this. It's, it doesn't seem like to many people, it doesn't seem like a victimless crime in the way you describe. So what would you say to that? Um, well, what I would say is I, I used to feel the same way for one. Um, for two, um, we in America, for the most part, I mean, especially you and I who are having a conversation via a computer and have the ability to do so, um, we don't have any understanding of the threat of violence and the poverty, the level of poverty that most of these people are running from. Um, and being a parent myself, I don't know if you're a parent, but yes, I have two. Um, I understand, like I would do everything within my power. If I felt like the threat of my child's life or the, you know, my child's safety was under threat of violence every single day. If I thought that I could do anything to change that, I would do anything I could. Um, and I think that's where we are. Maybe, maybe we're not dehumanizing them, but we're at least doing no effort in at, at, at putting ourselves in their shoes. We just, I mean, even our homeless people, our, our home, homeless populations probably have a much better standard of living than the vast majority of these people that are fleeing those areas. Um, you know, there's all kinds of shelters and soup lines and, uh, resources and all this stuff that, that, that people can choose to go and and, and take advantage of. There's none of that. I mean, what a, a lot of these, and especially a lot of these family units, they are selling any property that they have and, and basically mortgaging their future on a possibility that they might slip through the cracks to get in here. I mean, what and anybody that that wants to <laughs> say that they're that that these people are abusing their kids by by trying to bring them here. It's not I mean, these people don't love their kids less than we do because we're American. I mean, they feel exactly the same way about their kids that we do. So the fact that they're doing it should register with us that um that what they're trying to get away from must be pretty bad um and i I think it's 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 coming from a place of extreme comfort that we're able to try to nitpick and say that oh well you know they're putting their kids in danger but well if ms-13 is hunting your kid down or if you can't feed your kid because, you know, you live in a weird, you know, a, a far off Guatemalan mountain town and there's no industries there and there's, you know, a, a bad year of crops and you can't feed your kid. I, I don't blame them. Not in the least. Thanks for listening to the bonus round. If you'd like to hear more mini episodes like this, please let me know by calling or texting the flip phone at 323-999-1802 or catch up with the 180cast on Twitter at 180cast. 
Have a wonderful new year. And until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless.